We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18 this morning. And as we stand, I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version of God's Word, standing in honor of God's Word, uh, a, um, something that we received from the Word of God with uh, the, the, the priest Ezra in the book of Nehemiah, standing before the Word of God. Follow along as I read, please. Verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to, to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And Lord Jesus, we ask that even as we read these words that you spoke to the, to the Apostle Paul, 
so many years ago, a couple thousand years ago. Lord, these words are still so true. And God, we pray that you'd have your way in our hearts as we look into these words, this passage. Might your spirit be with us. Might, might he be our teacher. Might he open our hearts that we would receive the truth of your word. Lord, have your way in our hearts. Give us discerning hearts and, and wisdom to know how we are to apply these truths to our lives, even knowing how we are to act, knowing how we are to think, knowing how we are to speak to others around us. And so, Lord, be glorified in this time. Might you be set apart and upon the throne of our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus, your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin this chapter, of course, uh, having finished chapter 25, and you guys who've been with us in the past weeks and months, you know that we've, we've been watching Paul as he'd been taken uh, into captivity, uh, into custody by uh, the Romans at the behest of the Jewish leaders. Uh, by this time, of course, we know that Paul is aware, as he had requested, actually, demanded, he made an appeal to Caesar of Rome, that would have been Caesar Nero at this particular time, even as these uh, accusations had been made against him by the Jews that we know didn't hold any water, there was no truth to them. Uh, the, the former governor Felix and now the governor Festus, uh, he had invited uh, uh, well, actually, King Agrippa and his wife Bernice, we've talked about all these in the last couple of chapters, uh, they had come to, to uh, give him a visit as he's a new governor there and all. And uh, they had, Festus understood, even as Paul had been before him, as well as the Jewish leaders, that there, there, there was really no charge given against Paul that was worthy of death, certainly. Uh, and he didn't know what to write. He had, he had ap appealed to Caesar and he had to send with Paul, when he sent Paul to Rome, to go before Caesar. He needed to, to, to prepare some words, some, some charge against him. And he didn't know what to write. And, and so he thought that, that King Agrippa would be able to help him. King Agrippa, being a Jew, had an understanding of the Jewish customs, the, the, uh, uh, the, the Jewish law, and, 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 and all that's a part of that. And, and so Festus was glad to do this, and as we see here, Paul is, is happy to appear before him as well. But Paul, knowing that he was going to go to Rome to be judged before Caesar, he knew that anything that he might say to King Agrippa had nothing to do with any legal aspect because he was going to, uh, he was going to Rome. But... He thought that he could have a, having a hearing before King Agrippa rather than seeking freedom from making his case before Agrippa, he was praying that he could give Agrippa freedom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was always willing and ready to give the gospel to whomever he had an opportunity. So, this is where we stand as we begin verse 26. And, and we, one, one of the things that's here, we, we talked about Agrippa last week uh, and who he, who he was as a member of the family of Herod. 
Now remember, and Paul was aware of this, as he was about to speak to Agrippa, this man was the great-grandson of the Herod who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. He was the grandson of the Herod who killed John the Baptist. The, the son of the Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, who had martyred the Apostle James. A little bit of history here, and you would think that he, Paul would be feeling a little bit uncomfortable. The history wasn't all in his favor here. Yet he didn't care. He wanted to give the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does remind us of, of Paul's heart. And, and we continue to go back to this. Back in chapter 20, verse 24, when, when Paul the Apostle stated that none of these things move me, nor do I count my life as dear to myself. And as, I, as we shared that passage a number of weeks ago, um, I shared with you that this is a key to successful ministry. Another way to put it, it's a key to successful service. Service to God and service to our fellow brothers and sisters and service to those who are not yet brothers and sisters in the Lord. When we care too much about ourselves, we're worried about what people are going to think of us or worried about what they might do to us or fill in the blank. But when we don't care, when that doesn't matter, when first and foremost is the honor and glory of God and the giving of his gospel, which we know is the only thing that is going to bring freedom to any individual heart, then that's what we go for. The Lord will protect us until it's time for us to go home to be with him. And when it's time to go home, he'll bring us home. But let's always remember that. But that was in Paul's heart. Paul said he's happy to speak before Agrippa so that he could defend himself in regard to the accusations that had been made to him. Now, in regard to these accusations, I, I, I shared a little bit about that, but remember, back in verse 20, uh, chapter 25, verse 7, we see these words, When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, this is speaking, of course, of Festus, stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, remember? And then in verse 18 of the same chapter, uh, Festus was speaking to Agrippa. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed. And he went on to say it was just some issue about the religion. And then in verse 27, the final verse of the previous chapter as Festus is basically addressing Agrippa and the other men who were there for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him and I'll remind you as I shared last week that not like he had a choice Paul had appealed to Rome he must go to Rome but he had to write something. He didn't know what to write, so he's looking for some help here in regard to that. Now, we also see 
That as Paul said that Agrippa had, all, had understanding of all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Uh, Paul knew that he would have a hearing by, some, some, uh, by someone who understood, understood where he was coming from. But more than anything else, though, we do see he wanted to bring the gospel, which is consistent with what the Lord spoke from the very beginning. Now, as we get to later in the chapter, the words of Jesus that, that Paul shares with Agrippa that, that he had shared with him, that Jesus shared with him, we see some things there in verses 16 to 18 that we're going to close with this morning that we do not read in Acts chapter 9. But consistent also, though, with what the Lord had spoken to Ananias of Damascus when he was speaking to Ananias about how he was going to minister to Saul of Tarsus. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord told Ananias, Go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And so he was about to share the truth with one of the kings within the, the empire of Rome. Not the emperor himself, but one of the kings, King Agrippa. In verses 4 to 5, not 45, 4 to 5, okay. We, we, we see um, Paul saying these things. My manner of life from my youth which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest set of our sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So he, he basically is sharing the reality of who he was before he met Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. As a, a Jew one who was following the Jewish religion to a T, uh, a part of the strictest sect of the Jews, as, as he says here, as a Pharisee. He, he speaks about even persecuting Christians in, in, in the following uh, passage. He, he, he shares that. And the idea that in, in so doing, that, that he was following this sect of the Jews called Pharisees. He, very, very high regard for the word of God. The, the Pharisees shared something with us in regard to that, amen? A very high regard for the word of God. And yet, they were none of the Jewish leaders, or I should say few of the Jew Jewish leaders, really open to the idea that this Jesus of Nazareth might be the promised Messiah, and they worked against that. That's where Paul was. That's what he was doing. Saul of Tarsus at the time, of course. Paul would write to the Philippians these words in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, as he basically speaks of his own pedigree as a Jewish man. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He was in the upper echelon you know, of, of the Jewish faith in the sense of the position that he held 
and the things that he did, the things that he believed following the law of the Jews. And then verses 6 to 8, we see that, that Paul begins to speak about why he's being judged. And as you know, we read this already, he refers to the reality of the resurrection. Again, verse 6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. So this hope is nothing new. It's not something that is new because Jesus was raised from the dead. It's something that the Jewish people were familiar with. We'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. But it's the hope that he says this hope is why, is what this is all about. To this promise are 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. Even to this day, all of the tribes, each one of us, we hope to attain to the resurrection from the dead. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. Then he asks him this question, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Back in Acts chapter 13, in the first missionary journey, Paul being in Antioch of Pisidia, said these words, Acts 13, beginning in verse 30 through verse 38. But God raised him, obviously speaking of Jesus, raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him up from the dead no more to return to corruption. To corruption he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins." And even as he preached the gospel at that point in time, there to the Jews in, in Antioch of Pisidia, he's preaching the gospel again here to King Agrippa. And he speaks about the reality that God had spoken of this truth, this doctrine of resurrection, long ago through the Psalms, as, as he mentions. The prophet Isaiah also wrote, in Isaiah 26, 19, Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise, awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. In another psalm, Psalm 49, 15, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Isn't that a blessed verse? A blessed, blessed verse. And in regard, in regard to resurrection, not only is it taught through these scriptures and, and, and many others, they saw it happen. Elijah raised the son of the widow of Zarephath 
in 1 Kings chapter 17. We don't have time to go there, but you'll recall that particular incident. And then Elisha, the prophet, raised the son of the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. And so Agrippa, with his understanding of the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish law, their customs, and so forth, would have been familiar with these things. And that's why he could ask, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Or he could ask a follow-up question like, or that God would do anything for that matter. Because there is nothing impossible for God, amen? Nothing impossible for him. In verse 9, he begins to speak of the, of the persecution that he was uh, um, placing against these believers of this new sect that was called the way. Verse 9, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even in foreign cities. So this was his general behavior at that time. These are the things that he was doing. Note with me verse 10. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. For one thing, we see when he says, when they were put to death, it seems to be that he was involved in more than just simply the martyrdom of Stephen that we read of in the seventh chapter, or the eighth chapter, I should say, of the book of Acts. Um, it also speaks of the fact that he placed his vote against them, meaning that he had a position on, on the highest a board, if you will, of the Jewish people, a member of the Sanhedrin, as a strict Pharisee. And he was active in that way. And then he goes on and says, as I was just about my business of doing this kind of thing, verse 12, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, he's sure to include the fact that he had the authority of the Jewish body, the chief priests, and even um, yeah, from the chief priests, the authority and commission from them. Uh, he begins to speak of his experience there on that road to Damascus. At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. So that, that brightness, it wasn't the brightness from the sun, it was a brightness from the glory of Jesus himself coming to that place. And that brightness shone all around him and the men that were with him traveling to Damascus. When all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me. So not only did Paul fall to the ground, but, all, but the men also had fallen to the ground. I guess they got the message that we got yesterday. Today is, well, today is Benny Hinn Day. So we had to remember to fall back. <laughs> That's what they did. 
This was real. Some of you guys don't know what I'm talking about, huh? We will talk about it later. I think that's hilarious. One of the brothers sent me that last night. I started laughing. Benny Hinde. Anyway. Yeah, this actually happened, all of them. You know, and, and, and guys, let me share something with you. We have friends, perhaps relatives, people we work with, who will say something like, you know, if there is a judgment day, I've got a few questions I'm going to be asking this, this God of yours. I don't think so. I don't think so. Even we are going to be so overwhelmed in the presence of this God. It's going to be amazing, guys. And guys, we have loved ones in his presence right now. Isn't that amazing to think about? When I think about the fact that my bride is there with him now, and all this is like, you know, and I've shared this with you guys a number of times. I'll say it again. It's hard for me to feel bad about that. It's hard for me to feel bad about that. I'm glad she's there. I don't like she's not here with me, but you know what? I'm glad she's there. And that she, she is in that place that, that she, this is where, and, and all those who, who have gone before us, I see some of you shaking your head with, with a loved one, knowing that that loved one is there as well. But you know, we're going there too. That, that's our hope. That's our hope. This is the hope that Paul is speaking of here in this passage. The hope of resurrection. The hope of being in his presence. Well, we see him speaking of this encounter with Jesus. He mentions that he hears him in the Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We see that all. Now this is, this Jesus is speaking to a Jewish Pharisee who had received the promise of resurrection, had received the promise of a coming Messiah. This coming Messiah had indeed come, but he didn't recognize this Messiah as Messiah, right? That's what we see here. A basically a pagan man in the sense of not believing, being an unbeliever, not believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Much like those that we speak to on a regular basis who might be members of our family or friends or whatever. But he says, why are you persecuting me? We see the reality that persecution of the church, persecution of individuals who are part of the church is actually persecution of Jesus himself. Right? Anyone who would persecute you, and let's face it, in our culture, we don't face a lot of persecution. Mostly it's words. But even to that degree, they're not persecuting you. They're not persecuting me. They're persecuting Jesus. In Matthew 25, verse 40, the second part of that verse, we see Jesus saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Right? So that truth, 
Proverbs 14.31 says, He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. And for example, all those who are part of any group of people who would, who would uh, oppose or oppress those who have no power. And this isn't even speaking of on religious terms. But a person with power who oppresses the poor, who has no power, that person is going to stand before God. He reproaches his maker. And everything we hear about in the world of oppression fits into that category. You know, and there are those who are, who are, who are very greatly misled to believe. Hamas, for example, members of the Islam faith who think that they will be, re be rewarded for, for actually killing, exterminating what they call the infidels. And what they mean especially by that are Jews and Christians. How sad to think that they're going to be rewarded for that when indeed they will receive the punishment of the greatest, hottest part of hell. Yet, God would want each and every one of them to come to faith in Jesus Christ if they would do so. Let's not forget that. Jesus died for them too. Jesus went on to say it's hard to kick against the goads. An ox, when he's put to service, has a harness put on him and he's led to plow the field or whatever it may be, generally that, but in his stubbornness and rebellion against his masters, he'll kick against it. And what they would do is, on a part of, of, the, of, of the machine that's actually doing the uh, uh, digging into the soil, they would, put, they would put goads, which are basically pointed sticks, pointed toward the ox, and when he would kick back, he would be kicking those pointed sticks, and he'd be a bloody mess, and it would hurt, and he'd learn to stop doing that. It's hard to kick against the goats. That's what Paul was doing. In his own stubbornness and his, in his rebellion against truth, holding fast the tradition as a Pharisee, maintaining the status quo without acknowledging the reality that Jesus is indeed the Messiah who had been prophesied, he was kicking against the goats by not believing that. I wonder how often we bring pain to ourselves by kicking against the goads as, as Paul was doing. Well, when Paul asked him who he is, he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. In verses 16 to 18, I want to focus on this, the, the purpose, as Jesus tells him there, the purpose for which he had come before him. And these are the words that, as we see, are not in Acts chapter 9. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose. To make you a minister or a servant. Remember, a minister is a servant. And a witness both of the things which you have seen 
and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. And even as Paul was sharing these things with King Agrippa, he was doing that. He was being a witness to the things that he saw on that particular day on the road to Damascus, right? And sharing with King Agrippa and the others who were there, Bernice, uh, uh, as well as the other men who were there, Festus also, sharing with them these things. But Paul was called to be a servant, a minister and a witness. One who was willing to die for his faith as a witness. Yeah, I want to remind you, as I've shared with you before, that this, the Greek word translated as witness is martus in the Greek, which is the same word that our English word martyr comes from. Service to God, which is so fervent and so real and so sincere that an individual is willing to die for his master. That's what we're called to, to, to do also, guys. A servant and witness. Back in Acts chapter 1, and you shall be a witness unto me, Jesus said. We're witnesses unto him. And I think it's something good for all of us to do, is just kind of sit back and think, am I really willing to die for Jesus? Am I willing to be chained for him? Am I? I think we have to ask ourselves those kinds of questions once in a while. In Philippians 2.17, Paul wrote to them, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. If God will use me to increase your faith, if God calls me to suffer, if my life is being poured out as a drink offering so that you can believe and your faith can grow, I thank my God for that and I'm glad I rejoice. Wow. That's powerful. And, and Jesus gave him a promise also, we see in verse 17. I will deliver you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you. Now, Paul had received this promise of protection by God. He received this promise from God. And guys, I think, I think it's something that's necessary for us as well. We need to understand that God is with us. You guys know that God is with you today? Is he with you today? And we know he's promised he'll never leave us nor forsake us, right? Let me say that again. He's promised that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, right? Okay, okay. And so, so he's with us in all of his power, all of his might. He's with us in regard to all that he is. In terms of that protection aspect, but his, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his wisdom, his his. his his, his knowledge, his majesty, his greatness, his compassion toward us. All of that, and whatever we're going through today, he is with you, he's with me. He's with us. And nothing can take us away from his love, Romans chapter 8. 
neither height nor depth and so forth, as he says in that passage, nothing can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You guys believe that? Okay. Let's live like it. Let's make decisions that are consistent with that belief, with that faith, as people of faith. Paul wrote to, the, to, the, to, to uh, Timothy, excuse me, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. He wrote, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. This is at a different time. This is what he wrote then, in, in his final letter that we know of. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And if we read all of that fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, and we see this toward the end of that chapter, toward the end of this letter. He will deliver me. We know that he was waiting to be executed as he was in prison in Rome. That's what he was waiting. And so I, can't, I don't know if he was saying, I still think I'm going to be delivered because I think I've still got some more work to do. I think God still is going to use me. Maybe he was thinking that. Or perhaps he was thinking he's going to deliver me from from the bondage of this flesh, and I'm going to be in his presence. One way or the other, it's deliverance, right? So, you and I will be delivered. Amen? Jesus told Paul that, well, Saul of Tarsus at the time, that he was now sending them to the Gentiles to open their eyes. Albert Barnes writes this, this, in relation to opening their eyes, it is to enlighten or instruct them. Ignorance is represented by the eyes being closed and the instruction of the gospel by the opening of the eyes. Have your eyes been opened? It's only God by his spirit that can open our eyes to this truth. And I would encourage you, as you are praying for loved ones, friends who don't yet know the Lord, pray this, that God would open their eyes. Don't pray for a change of lifestyle. Don't pray that they'll stop sinning. Because you already know they're not going to stop sinning. You haven't. <laughs> I can tell you're agreeing with me. No, they're, they're hope, our hope is not in, our, in the way that we live. Our hope is in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's our hope. And our eyes, anyone's eyes, need to be opened to that truth. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we see Paul writing, whose minds, these are people who have not yet come to faith, to faith whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. If their eyes were not blinded, if their eyes were not closed, they would see the light of Christ. But because they're blinded, they can't see. And so we pray, God, open their eyes. 
It's something I learned from Pastor Chuck. It was from his book on prayer, Effective Prayer Life. He shared his, in, in writing, he, he wrote in that book that in relation to this truth and that the, the reality of the snare of the devil and him basically having people who don't know the Lord and they don't know anything about spiritual warfare are not aware of the reality of being in the, under the hold, uh, under the sway of Satan himself. That he's got his hands on them. But as we pray, as we pray, every prayer, when we pray along these lines, Lord, loosen the grip of Satan, come against him, open the eyes of this person. As we pray that, every time we pray, is another blow of Jesus on the hands of Satan. Every time we pray, it's another blow. And those hands have to be released, softened, released, softened. The, the blinders pulled away from the eye. Because that's what God wants. That's what God wants. He wants this person saved. He died for him. Jesus died for him. And so every prayer we pray is that. I think it's a beautiful image to remember. Ephesians 1.18, Paul writing to the Ephesians, the eyes, as he's praying for them, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, we're talking about that today, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. That is powerful stuff. But our eyes have to be open so that we will know these things. Let's pray for one another that the eyes of the, each, individ, each individual in the church would be opened wider and wider to see these truths. In order to turn to them from darkness to light, Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. By the way, just a question. Who has qualified us? God has qualified us. Have you qualified yourself? No. We can't qualify ourselves. We're unable to be such or to do anything that would qualify us for this inheritance. In verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Those of us who have received Christ as Savior, those of us who love him, God has transferred us from one kingdom to the other. From the power of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of his love. To to the kingdom of Jesus and all that he is. And that, I mean, another beautiful, beautiful illustration for what God has done to us, or for us. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. You guys realize you once were in darkness, right? But now you've been called into his marvelous light. What, I mean, th these things are so powerful here. Don't you love God's word? So powerful that we see here. 
eyes opened and the way that he has brought us out of darkness and into light and from the power of Satan to God. Guys, it is so essential that we acknowledge the reality, the truth of spiritual warfare. We are at war. God didn't save us so that we could just frolic through the grass here on this earth. It's not playtime. It's time for battle. It's time for war. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul writing to the Thessalonians, writes, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 2 Timothy 2.26, and that they may come to their senses, those who have not yet come to Jesus, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will, not even acknowledging that that's really what's going on. But we know, don't we? For one thing, we've been freed, but we see the truth of it in the scripture. And it is through the word of God that we find this power to deliver us. False religions. First Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. You know, truth of the matter is any spiritual doctrine that does not come from God, does not come from His truth and God's Word, originates in the mind of Satan and his demons. It is a doctrine of demons. Now, I would not advise that you go to your Mormon friends and tell them that. But we need to understand that. Right? The doctrines of demons. Matthew 4.4 4, Jesus answering the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. It is written, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God. Oh, we need to cling to God's truth. A.W. Tozer wrote a book. From his writings, this book was, uh, was put together. It's called This World. I alluded to this earlier. This world, playground or battleground? He writes this. In the early days when Christianity exercised a dominant influence over American thinking, men conceived the world to be a battleground. Man, our fathers held, had to choose sides. He could not be neutral. For him it must be life or death, heaven or hell, and if he chose to come out on God's side, he could expect open war with God's enemies. 
The fight would be real and deadly and would last as long as life continued here below. Men looked forward to heaven as a return from the wars, a laying down of the sword to enjoy in peace the home prepared for them. Is that how you see life in this world? I pray so. I, I, I just, that, that is just so, so true. So this is what Jesus is teaching here. And this is what God, he himself, had called Saul of Tarsus to do and to become. And the reason and the purpose is that they may receive the forgiveness of sins, that they may receive an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me, set apart by faith in me, made holy by faith in me. The saints. He mentioned the saints earlier. And of course we know Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved, or you have been delivered. You've been saved through faith. That, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so the gospel being given to King Agrippa and to Festus, and to Bernice, and to the men who were with them there on this occasion. I wonder how they responded. Well, we are going to see how King Agrippa responds, at least immediately, in the following verses. We're also going to see a response of Festus as well. But guys, as we share with others, we have this beautiful truth, this gospel which brings deliverance, the opening of the eyes to see, being, being delivered from darkness to light, from Satan to God, to receive the forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. It's only by faith in Jesus. Amen. And Father, help us, be with us as we hold to that truth. Lord, sometimes we could, if, if we've been walking with you a while, we can just get so used to walking with you. We get so, so used to living the, the, the uh, Christian life that we forget some of these things, Lord. And thank you for your word and the reminder that we receive. Lord, might we not let our guard down because we are in warfare? Might we not go on cruise control? We're, on, we're in warfare. You've set a particular course, a particular race. Might we finish it faithfully and with joy. God, have your way. God, have your way with every heart that's in this place. So many of us have given our heart to you. We are saved by your grace through the faith that you've given to us, Lord. It's not by works, but thank you. Thank you for the gift of life. As our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed right now, I wonder if there's anyone in this room who has not yet given your heart to Christ, not yet acknowledged your need for the forgiveness of your sins, and that it can only come through the power of the gospel, the power of the truth of what Jesus has done by taking your sin and mine upon himself, being the Lamb of God 
that our sins might be removed. If you know you need Jesus in your life now and you want that forgiveness of sins, raise your hand. I want to pray for you. God bless you. God bless you. Anyone else? You know that's what you need. You know Jesus is who you need. Anyone? We'll wait another moment. Maybe there's a battle taking place in your heart even now. God bless you. I see your hand. God bless you. Anyone else? You may lower your hands. Father, I pray for these who've raised their hands. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power with which you come to deliver us from the influence and the sway, the control, the chains of the devil himself. Lord, your word declares that you came, Jesus, to to deliver us from the power of the devil. And so, Lord, thank you. I pray for these individuals who raised their hand today, Lord, that they would know that grace, that they would sense a freedom in their hearts right now as, as you, Lord, begin to minister to their hearts, as you, Lord, begin to speak into their hearts, even as you did, have done this morning. Lord, I pray that as they receive you, acknowledge that they need to follow you, acknowledge that they need you, Lord Jesus, that, that they would get into your word and, and learn your truth and that, that people around them, we as a church, whomever can, will help them in this new life. And so, God, be with them. Might might they know your life. Might they experience the hope. Might they know your great love for them, for which, Jesus, you gave yourself to give them that life. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we ask all these things. And we bless you in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.